Welcome to episode one of the EISF in Conversation podcast, where we investigate different perspectives and aspects of humanitarian security risk management. Our aim is to raise awareness of security risk management, encourage a better understanding of what security risk management can achieve, and start conversations in and outside the sector. The European Interagency Security Forum, the EISF, is an independent network of security focal points who represent European-based humanitarian NGOs operating internationally. And in this series, we explore how security risk management can enable humanitarian access. My name is Robert Cudmore, and to start the series off, I'm speaking to none other than Loretta Mengela, the CEO of Christian Aid. Hello, Loretta. Thanks for joining me today. And could you just tell me a little bit about your role, first of all, please? So I'm the chief executive of Christian Aid. Christian Aid works in 39 countries across the world, and we carry out humanitarian programmes, long-term development programmes, and we uh, advocate and campaign against the structures and systems that keep people poor. And my job is to make sure that all of that work is the best work that it can be, that we manage our resources the best way we can, and that we create and maintain a, a great working environment for our staff. Great. And today we're going to talk about security risk management. Can I begin by asking you why it's so important to Christian Aid? I think it's always important to step back and say, what are we actually here for when you tackle any piece of work at all? And what we're here for is we care desperately about the problem of poverty in our world. We care desperately when we see people in crisis facing the consequences of natural disaster, uh, conflict and so on. And we've got that burning passion to do something about that. And if we want to do something about that, then we ourselves have to be safe in the process in order to get to people in need, in order to maintain the quality of what we can do by way of programming. We have ourselves to be safe and well. So it's about actually, first and foremost, about achieving our goals. And secondly, about looking after ourselves in the process. We've got nothing uh, to help us at the, end of the, at the end of the day if we haven't got our staff, uh, if, if we ourselves are not safe. And... It's also because there's a legal duty, which is, for me, the most boring thing, but I am a lawyer. Uh, We actually have a legal duty of responsibility uh, to provide a safe system of working for our staff. And and, and that's the third, but perhaps the least important reason. And would you agree that staff will feel taken care of and therefore they'll be more efficient because they're they're happy and settled in their role, knowing that... uh, everything's operating the the best way possible. Mm. Well, I I very much approach that from the point of view of a newcomer. I remember very clearly coming into Christian Aid in April 2010, and I was straight off to Kenya for my first visit. And I didn't come from a long background in the sector at all. I'd actually spent 20 years in the financial services world. And um, obviously, I had a huge amount to learn. And the, the, the then corporate security manager sat me down uh, and talked me through all the risks that I would be likely to encounter and how I would best manage them. I had a sort of one-to-one security training for the point of view of that first visit. And I did feel very proud of the fact that Christian Aid was taking um, my security that seriously. And I did feel very looked after and, and much better equipped to undertake the trip. And obviously it was a relatively low risk trip. Uh, but later in the year, 
um, I had very much more risk involved in the trips that I undertook and, it, and I thought it was great that Christian Aid laid on really high quality security training, not just for me as the chief executive, but for all staff encountering those kinds of, of risks in their work. So I certainly did feel looked after. I think every member of staff should feel looked after in that way. And that's really what security risk management's about, isn't it? It's about facing the challenge head on, being aware of the risks and having things in place to deal with them. I think you're making a really important point there because I think that a lot of people hear the phrase risk management and they think risk averse. And actually, I came from a very different background, but where we uh, were constantly looking at the risks that we needed to manage, not so as to avoid taking any chances, because the world is a risky place. And if you want to do the sort of work that we want to do here, you do have to take some risks. But the important thing is to look them in the eye and understand what they are and then do what you reasonably can to mitigate them. Not to be scared of them, but not to be blind to them either. And I think that that's the kind of of, of balance that we, we need to just get hold of. Not to worry about being risk averse because we can't eliminate all the risks that there are in our work but to be very, very alert and conscious and intentional about the risks that we choose to take and the risks that we choose to avoid. Do you ever encounter any resistance to being risk-aware, like complacency or people just trying not to think about it? I think I come back to what I said at the beginning, that uh, we have this very, very important driving mission to do something about poverty and people in crisis. And I do encounter occasionally people who are so passionate about what they want to achieve and so passionate about the needs that they want to meet that they want to find ways, if you like, of not ignoring exactly but just wanting to wish away the risks that are associated with the work. And I think that's really, really natural and it comes from a brilliant instinct to want to respond to people in need. But ultimately, we do need to be safe. And actually, it can be extremely resource intensive to deal with risks that crystallise here. If people get themselves into security difficulties, if people you know, have an avoidable road accident, for example, I mean, that is going to really divert attention away from responding to the need. And that's how I try to respond to people like that. Let's look at this risk together. Let's not avoid it. Because if we can manage it down, we can then meet the needs that we're also all, all passionate to meet. So yes, I do encounter it sometimes but it comes from a really good place sometimes I encounter something else that does worry me a bit and I think it's just worth pausing on this that I think that humanitarians feel that they have to be very strong and I think again that comes from a good place of recognizing that when people are in a very vulnerable place it's good to be able to come in and help them and show them that there's a there's a way forward and and to accompany them and be strong for them But in that being strong, I think that there's sometimes, sometimes a neglecting of the impact on ourselves of responding to that need. It's a a bit macho if I could, maybe that's not quite the right word, but do, do you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. People play down the psychological impact on themselves. And I have seen very close up the impact on some of our colleagues of forgetting that when you see the amount of pain that we see, when you experience the isolation that we can experience in our work, when you experience the kind of levels of fear that can be associated with some of the risks that we entertain, that has an impact on us. 
And I also know, for example, I've, my most recent trip was to South Sudan. I also know that you know when we do work that takes us into conflict zones uh, that are high risk for, even for humanitarians, that that also takes a toll on our families and on our friends and that we find ourselves also managing their discomfort and their anxiety. And I think it's terribly important that we understand that it's not weak. It's not weak to say, I'm struggling with this, or I'm worried about people who are struggling with this for me. It's strong to say, that's there, and how can I manage that anxiety or the anxiety of other people? And and I think that we don't always do ourselves favours by telling ourselves that we can't worry about ourselves in that way or it's 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 somehow not strong or you're not a real humanitarian if you experience any of those feelings or people around you do i suppose it's it's human nature isn't it you're aware of risks in everything you do every mm, day yeah. crossing the road getting on a plane yes. even being in an office building i mean you, that, that's why we have to have regular fire mm. drills because mm-hmm. people just put it out of their mind they make a decision they're going to take that risk yes. and it's probably nothing as bad's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then it just gets pushed out the back of their minds. Yes. So like a, a regular fire drill, it's good to keep reminding people, remember, let's get this right. Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think that one of the things that you've um, pointed to there is that people internalise a lot of their own risk management. Um, and I think that one of the things that good security practice does is externalise it again, if you like, make people conscious of the risks that they're taking anyway. Um, one of the things I think that I've learned through great support from fantastic security professionals in my time at Christian Aid is that a lot of this isn't some kind of rocket science where you've got to have you know, lots and lots of extra qualifications in in security management to be able to operate. A lot of it's just being very conscious of where you are, what's around you, and um, actually developing some simple tools of self-reliance. You know, what risks am I taking now? Can I just take some common sense precautions so as not to run into those risks unnecessarily? Um, You know, uh, very simple things in the field, for example, and I know that people push back on this, but uh, the most common security risk that crystallises is in road traffic accidents. Do people wear their seatbelts or do they say, I'm a humanitarian and therefore I'm not going to bother? Um, One of the things I try to do when I travel is to reinforce the good practice of uh, some of our brilliant drivers in our vehicles who want to maintain excellent vehicles and want good practice inside the vehicle too by you know, always trying to remember not only to put on my own seatbelt, but to encourage other people to do the same. Maybe I don't always get that right, but I think that there are some very simple things that we always need to uh, attend to. And what we can do um, is to support each other just to take those simple steps and to be conscious of taking them and encouraging each other to take them too. Yeah, I, I think leading by example, as you're doing, is obviously a great way of promoting that ethic. Mm. So... Clearly, it's been important to you to create and maintain a culture of security within your organisation. How do you feel you've done so far? I feel like that there were uh, lots of examples of good practice when I came into Christian Aid. It's not something that I feel is something that I need to take the credit for. I think there were some very good practices already. What I've tried to do here is just reinforce all the good practice that I've seen and try and make it more systematic. So... 
um, encouraging security travel sign-off processes that make sure that people have had their training, that it is up to date, that their their trips are signed off with proper itineraries before they travel, and actually just being a little bit of a stickler on those forms that I don't sign them off if I'm not basically satisfied that the right steps have been taken and to encourage people to think in advance about for example refreshing their security training and when I talk to staff about how I'm managing my own security just to make it plain to them that I do think about that that it is something that I'm not shy to attend to and to reinforce particularly because I think it is a particular risk this need to ensure your own psychological welfare and well-being and not just your physical well-being. So it's evolution rather than revolution and just carrying on and and improving basically? I think you're right it does need to be a, a process of continuous improvement and I think Christian Aid, although we do take security seriously, and I think we've got a reasonable track record in that regard, I don't think for one moment that those who are responsible uh, for our systems around security and Christian Aid would be complacent at all. It's very important that we're not. And that's uh, partly because the risks that we're facing are changing. Uh, As we see as an organisation, we're operating in higher and higher risk environments more commonly. And also we're seeing a change in patterns of conflict. We're seeing changes in techniques uh, around terrorist attacks, for example. We're also seeing a rise in vulnerability to um, uh, uh, instrumentalised kidnapping for all kinds of political as well as uh, financial reasons. All of these things mean that we have to keep asking ourselves, what we've done may have been fine for the past, but what do we need now to do for the future? And so I hope that we will always continue to adapt and evolve. So in your experience, then, what have been the main drivers for change and continuing improvement? For instance, world events, like you mentioned terrorist attacks there, or changes in policy, for instance, that have come from any government changes that have been made, or this government or governments abroad? I do think that world events of the kind that I've already described have played their part. I do think that we're going to have to be extremely careful and conscious in the coming years around uh, the whole business of maintaining ourselves independent and impartial in our practice and not getting on the wrong side of the securitization agenda I don't know if that's the right way of expressing it but you know it's very important that we're not seen as part of any kind of military operation And we see, don't we, more pressure on aid budgets to be used for things that are really much more security related. And I do see a vulnerability for humanitarian actors in that. And I do think that those kinds of risks may may have increased over the past couple of years. And I certainly think they will continue to increase and we need to be very attentive to them. Um, I think that a positive development is the embracing of the localisation agenda coming out of the World Humanitarian Summit, because I think that working more closely with local actors will, in fact, improve security of humanitarians overall. Christian Aid is not a directly implementing organisation at least not 99.9% of the time. And what that means is there's a great advantage because when we're operating in the field, we're operating with local actors who really, really know the lie of the land. And I think that more and more people are acknowledging that local actors can play such a powerful role in humanitarian response and development. So I think over time, the profile of security risks should diminish. I think we need to be attentive to the fact that our partners, though, and local organisations more generally 
sometimes have that complacency around security risks or perhaps a lack of investment in their own security training. So although they have the contacts and the connections which help them mitigate risks, they don't always have the training that's required. So when I travel, I'm increasingly hearing from partners that they appreciate the support, the professional um, security personnel can give them in marrying their local connections and their local contacts and their local awareness with more you know, technical approach to security that can help them be stronger and more resilient in their work too. So I see, I see um, probably more partnering around security risk management as time goes on. And I think the other thing that I see is a driver for change is a greater willingness on everyone's part to talk about well-being in the round, including psychological well-being. And I hope that over time that we will get more competent and and our work will be more embedded around managing well-being in the round in that way. That was one thing I wanted to touch upon actually was the idea that security risk management is embedded within programmes and not seen as a a separate or siloed component. I mean Mm -hmm. I've seen that in other Mm organisations almost like an afterthought sometimes. How easy is it to make sure that security risk management is embedded and is part and parcel of everything you do as opposed to the risk of it being an afterthought? I think that's both a process question and also a culture question. And our processes can support, and every NGO can do this, make sure that processes around addressing programme design always from the off actually take account of the basic security context for the operation. And... Christian Aid's analysis of its country programme offer, for example, will always start from an analysis of the local context, both politically, security-wise and all all other respects, and a, a power analysis will be part of that. So I think it's that's about basic processes around how you design and put propositions on the table. But I think it also is terribly important that people at all levels reinforce each other in taking security seriously and that's a natural part of the culture and that's down to leadership it's down to management but it's also down to induction and I think that we can make sure at the induction stage that people understand that our basic values require that we look after ourselves we look after each other and that's all part of being able to deliver what we're here to deliver. Do you see any geographical shifts in security risk management? I think what we've seen over the past few years is new conflict erupting in a lot of the locations in the global south that we work in. Uh, That's probably always been the case. But I think what we've also seen in recent years is uh, the eruption of new kinds of security risks in in the global north and the rise in particular of uh, Islamist-related terrorist attacks. And I think that you perhaps see these differently depending on your age. I mean, I'm in my mid-50s, and when I first worked in London, where the, the security risks were around IRA bombs, which were sometimes accompanied by some kind of warning, and uh, but often were not. And so for me to be experiencing sitting in Waterloo with, you know, Westminster Bridge and London Bridge so close by and recent terrorist attacks there, um, I'm looking at those thinking this is a new wave of a new kind of attack, but not something new in my 
experience altogether in terms of being vulnerable in the day-to-day of working in the global north but I think that for some colleagues it does feel like something new it does feel like something different for, for which they're not equipped and I think that we need to be attentive to that we need to support uh, staff to take the, the obvious precautions um, and drill them in the basic responses to the kinds of attacks that we already know about and uh, as we get any kind of new information to to evolve our training accordingly and I think that we also need to look to make sure that our domestic risk management in the global north is as good as the quality of the risk management that we are bringing to bear in the global south and I think that could require some enhancement to what we already do. So there are obvious challenges both home and abroad. How would you describe the real benefits of great security risk management? I think that's probably best addressed by giving you an example from my own experience. Uh, I mentioned earlier my very first trip for Christian Aid, which was to Kenya. It was at the time a level three country, a three, four country for us. But where I was going was quite a manageable risk. My most recent trip was to South Sudan, which is a very high risk location currently, one of the most dangerous places in the world to be an aid worker. And uh, the security risks are now present all over the country, including in, in Juba, the capital. So when I was there, there was a very important conversation in the middle of the time that I was there about whether or not we would depart from Juba to to go to a deep field location which required a plane journey and a helicopter journey. And the challenge was that Juba itself felt very, very volatile at that time. And it became apparent that if we departed from Juba and went to this deep field location and got there safely, it might not be possible to return on anything like the timescale we had envisaged. And then we would be isolated behind opposition lines in a, in, a, in a relatively vulnerable position from all kinds of points of view. And so we had to make a decision together about whether or not that was a risk that we would take. And what equipped us to make that decision was all of our training, our professional experience between us, all of our contacts, our, our excellent contacts and our network information that we had. Um, I was also fortunate to have the Christian Aid head of security with me in that conversation and that was really valuable, But as was the experience of the, the local country manager who obviously really knew the context. But I, what I thought was great about that conversation was that we came to the decision together. It was very important that we did. And every one of us in the end took ownership of the decision we made, which was to carry on with the visit and go to the field, knowing that the risk was there. And the great benefit of that, from my point of view, we made a highly professional decision. We had downloaded to each other all the relevant intelligence. We'd put all the mitigation we could into that um, set of arrangements and decision making. And then I felt very peaceful at the point that we made the decision that I was uh, attending to my own needs, that we'd attended to each other's needs as a team, that we were managing the risk to the organisation and, and this is the crucial thing, we could go about the work that we were there to do. And from the point that we made that decision, I felt very peaceful and able absolutely to concentrate on the task in hand. So it took away the kind of latent anxiety that's around when you're not actually crystallising a good security decision, when you're you're just sort of, you know, working alongside the risk rather than managing it. I felt in control and able to do my job. And we're here to do a job. Great security management helps you to get the job done.
So it sounds perhaps unsurprisingly that the the answer to risk aversion, whether it's conscious or subconscious, is open collaboration and open channels of dialogue, everyone being exactly aware of what the situation is and having a, a fair input and coming to a, a great consensus. I think coming to a great consensus, you're right, but also respecting and understanding the nature of the perspective that contributes to the conversation. So really understanding that you want the local perspective of someone who's in the context all day, every day, recognising that you need the expertise of, of, of security professionals, recognising that you need also to work with your own instincts and experiences, that all of these different contributions need to be weighed in the balance. If I could ask you one last thing, mm-hmm. are there any misconceptions that you'd like to address? Anything where it's obvious that people often think something and that's just not the case? I think the the most important thing that I think that people misconstrue about any kind of risk management and security risk management is not an exception, is that even by talking in terms of risk management, you're signifying some kind of risk aversion. But it's because we want to respond to need. It's because we know that that involves the taking of risk, that we want to take risks well. And I think that's the most important misconception to address. Loretta Mangella, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. If you'd like to know more about Loretta Mangella and Christian Aid, please visit www.christianaid.org.uk. That was episode one of EISF in Conversation. I hope you'll join us for episode two, when I'll be joined by Eva Svoboda from the Overseas Development Institute. Meanwhile, if you have any thoughts about this podcast or would like to know more, you can contact us at eisf-info at eisf.eu or simply visit www.eisf.eu. I'm Robert Cutmore. Thank you for listening.